Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Brace yourself for a sobering analysis of the state of the body politic and national soul. America is ailing from three main afflictions that are dangerously undermining the nation's ability to act in the interest of the common good. So argues Joshua Mitchell, a professor of political theory at Georgetown University, in his 2020 book, America Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. According to Mitchell, the first and most serious of these afflictions is the rage for identity politics, which he argues has become a religious arena for sacrificial offering. The sacrificial scapegoat of our time is a white heterosexual man. Those who do not not fall into that category are deemed pure and innocent groups who must purge the stained transgressor group. The second affliction is a sort of bipolarity in which many Americans veer from feeling invincible on their social media platforms at one moment to suddenly feeling impotent in the face of everyday problems. In the latter mode, they abjectly rely on the expert class and global managers to see them through all manner of problems, from climate change to pandemics to basic economic travails. The third affliction, says Mitchell, is the enervating hope held by many Americans that they can find shortcuts that negate the need to acquire basic life skills. Mitchell gives examples of substituting social media friendship for actual face-to-face contact with others, online shopping instead of navigating the brick-and-mortar world, and relying on technology to get us to our destinations, be that technology online maps or, in days to come, self-driving cars. But the book is not all doom and gloom. Mitchell argues that we can regain national cohesion via via the recovery of liberal competence and adherence to three pillars of renewal, committing to the middle-class commercial republic our country was founded as, a sincere effort to address the legacy of slavery, and a modest foreign policy. Given what minefields race and politics are currently, this is a fearless book. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope Dia Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Joshua Mitchell about his 2020 book, America Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Thank you for joining us today, Josh. Thank you, Hope. I will say that was the best synopsis of the book I've ever heard. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I read every word of the book, and I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I wanted to do justice to it because it's a fine and important book. I'd like to start by working our way through the title of the book. What do you mean by American Awakening, for example? And given that much of the book is about identity politics, did you consider entitling it The American Awakening? Well, uh, the term American Awakening began to surface about around the time I was giving serious theological reflection to the subject. I did my dissertation work officially in the government department, uh, but I spent half my time in the Divinity School back in Chicago in the 1980s and know enough about American religious movements to, to have sniffed something very strange in this identity politics movement for the time. So, uh, so, so what's happened is that we're in the midst of, of an American awakening, this time without God and without forgiveness. So there's, I tried to grant a level of seriousness to the claim that people are making about American awakening. Everybody sniffs that there's a, a religious element here, but I don't think anybody else uh, has really worked this through in the careful way that I've tried to do it. Well, I think it's fascinating, too, because I had never really thought of, of um, uh, the identi- identity politics having anything whatsoever to do with religion at all, because it seems to me that it was just based on pure resentment and and vindictiveness to, to, to a large extent. But you make a fascinating case about the scapegoat is a major trope of your book. Could you discuss how the, the, the scapegoat aspect of it? And I was interested, I, I didn't really know much about the word scapegoat. So I looked it up and I found out that it's not only in the New Testament, in the term, in the body of Christ, but in, in the Old Testament. In fact, it's more, it's more emphasized in the Old Testament. Is that correct? Or? Yes. So it's in Leviticus that you'll find the first reference to the scapegoat. And there, what the Jews do is they literally put their hands on a goat who takes away the sins of the community and, the, and or takes upon himself the sins of the community and then is walked out of the, of the village beyond the perimeter. And that is the way in which the body social is purified. The Christian formulation 
is that there is, in fact, a scapegoat, but it's a divine scapegoat who once and for all takes away the sins of the world. And this is really a staggering formulation. And I don't think you understand it fully unless you understand the pagan backdrop uh, of how human beings solve the problem of impurity. Uh, Pagan wars were horrendous wars where they salted the fields and killed everybody in cathartic rage. And uh, what, what Christianity suggests is that the pagan way of getting rid of impurity, namely through cathartic rage, will no longer work. And it will no longer work because there's an acknowledgement that the problem of sin is internal to man. And this is what, what original sin is meant to convey, that the problem is so deep that it precedes what you are as a man or a woman or any other identity group. And moreover, it's so deep that you cannot purge another creature in the world of time and hope to solve the problem of your own stain. And the Christian formulations, I think, first beautifully formulated in St. Athanasius' book called The Divine Incarnation, suggested that there's a divine dilemma that man could not bring himself back to God, could not purify himself, and so God sends himself into the world to take upon himself the sins of the world. And it's a once-and-for-all sacrifice. And what I've, uh, through my many years of studying political theory, I've taken a number of authors quite seriously, notably Tocqueville and Nietzsche. And I think what, what Nietzsche saw was that the crisis of the West was not that it had completely renounced Christianity, but that it had renounced the church, but not all the Christian categories. So it had not renounced equality, not renounced the idea of uh, equality of persons, and it had not fully renounced the idea of guilt. Now, Nietzsche didn't work this through satisfactorily, but what he saw was that in the future, by which he meant in the 20th and 21st century, the West would be plagued by vestigial Christian categories, but would no longer have the architecture, so to speak, the larger framework within which to comprehend them and to resolve them. And so what identity politics does is it gives us transgression and innocence, right? You mentioned this at the outset. There is one prime transgressor at the moment. It's the white heterosexual male. And I will pause here to indicate that I have no interest whatsoever in defending racial politics. But it gives us one uh, one prime transgressor, and then everybody else establishes their innocence as a function of their distance from him. So if you're a woman, you get some points. If you're black, you get some points. If you're gay, you get other points. If you're transgender, you get the most points of all. This is called your intersectionality score. You can look it up on the web to see how innocent you really are. Uh, And this is really an astounding attempt to work out a moral economy based on transgression and innocence. And the Christian, and what Nietzsche saw was that we would be haunted by guilt and innocence and all these other categories, but we would no longer have the architecture. And so what is, what is truly ghastly about identity politics is that it calls out purity and stain, but gives no possible way uh, to repair the problem. So within Christianity, you have forgiveness, atonement, repentance, this vast architecture, which allows us both to acknowledge the depth of sin and to reconcile ourselves Uh, so that we can overcome it and have a tomorrow, which is the phrase I like to use. But identity politics gives us no tomorrow. It's always backward looking. It always seeks to find out more and more transgressions so that the unbearable weight of sin keeps amassing so that what we have to do to attain atonement is to renounce the nation, renounce the family, renounce the churches so that we can be pure. And that's what the left is proposing for all of us. Well, I'd like to, to encapsulate a little about the Democratic Party in this in this respect when you say that it encompasses an enormous amount of of pu- public policy and environmentalism and so forth. And I'm just going to read this passage because it's fascinating to me. But, well, I, I paraphrased it, but you talk about the current state of the Democratic Party and you say that the identity politics covers so much by the far left of the party and, that, and, and including now the establishment wing of it in the form of Biden. You make the point that it's, it's characterized by pushback against national borders and assistance that fundamental eco- political and economic transformations are necessary to address climate change. It expresses disgust with dirty fossil fuels. It demands wealth risk re- redistribution. It demands that every mediating institution which citizens gathered must be altered so as to be inclusive. And you argue that this is rooted in the, the idea that the markets, the nation state, market commerce, the petrochemicals that fuel it, 
conventional generative family, our civic institutions and our religious institutions are unclean or obsolete because of the hand that white heterosexual man has had in building and maintaining them. And yet what's interesting to me is that Biden is the ultimate white power player. And he, he came through in the primaries against power uh, identity power players like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, Kirsten Gillibrand, and so on. How do, how do you account for Biden's rise to the top of this pyramid? Is it because that they think, okay, he's the one that can implement the ultimate destruction because he has the credibility with the white working class? Or what, what, what was it that made Biden the leader of this movement now? Well, there's a couple of things. I do think Biden was seen as the moderate broker, but I... But if you recall the, uh, the primaries, it was really in the South Carolina primary that Biden shone. And he, he really cut a deal with Clyburn and other black leaders, the Congressional Caucus, um, and in effect said, I will be you, you rally all the minority troops for me and I will be your, your broker. I will be the, the man who does all this for you. Uh, and so I think Biden has cut a deal with the far left version of the Democratic Party, I think there are still are some moderates around, very few. Uh, and when I wake up with a generous uh, frame of mind, I think that perhaps some of the advisors in the Biden circle are trying to do the impossible, namely retain some semblance of, of, of moderation so that Democrats can actually be elected. Uh, and on the other hand, I, on a bad day, I think that Biden is largely a figurehead for a leftward movement that has already destroyed uh, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. It's probably more that. But the, the reason why Biden can be the broker uh, is, I think, very interesting. So how is it that a, that a white heterosexual male can survive uh, in a world in which he's the prime transgressor? This is the question. And as I say in the, in the preface and elsewhere in the book, uh, what I, I say that there's a, a Passover ritual that every American must endure every single day. And you, you mentioned liberal competence. My view is that we have to build a world based on liberal competence, and that's where our energies should be directed. But in fact, our energies are not directed toward building a world together. They are directed to avoiding social death, cancel culture, for example. And the question is, how do we cancel or how do we make sure that we don't experience social death? Well, the template for this is uh, it's in the it's in the book of Exodus. Could, Josh, could, Josh, could you could you explain what you mean by the term social death? Well, uh, social death meaning canceling, meaning you no longer have a place in the world. So I use the term social death. Uh, you know, you can keep your. This is language from Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. He says you can keep your property and all, from, but from henceforth you will be a stranger among us. Uh, and I think that Tocqueville saw that in 1835, that Americans had this disposition anyway, which we now call cancel culture. I'm not even sure about keeping your property because when the, ba- <laughs> yeah. when the bakers, you know, they, they bankrupt, their, they, they go after their property, they go after their livelihoods. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's worse than even Tocqueville had imagined. I agree with you. Uh, but the Passover ritual is a very interesting one because uh, death is going to come to the Jews unless they paint on the lintel of their door the mark of innocence, the innocence, innocent blood of a lamb. And if you paint on your door the innocent blood of a lamb, then death will pass you over. My argument is that identity politics has an up, updated version of that. And so what you must do is you must put a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard. You must put a sign in your office and on your office door so that all can see uh, this office is green. Or you must have some old faded Martin Luther King poster inside your office so that you get a, a pass from the left-leaning members of the um, of the new coalition. And so every single day in America, people are looking for a pass. Woke capitalism, by the way, is exactly this. So the Coca-Cola company, uh, in order to get a pass for its extraordinary wealth concentration, simply has to declare that we're with Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter uh, movement, if you will, is a is a massive extortion movement, which plays on white guilt and says, come unto me, uh, give your money in the millions to Black Lives Matter, and you get a pass. You're called righteous among us, uh, and you can go about your business making huge sums of money. The big problem we have in America right now is wealth inequality. 
But when you have this Passover ritual in place, then Amazon, Google, Facebook, they all get a pass from huge concentrations of wealth that they have acquired. Uh, they get a pass because they're they're involved in the right social commitments. They've, they've given a pass from social death. And the corporations are playing this brilliantly. Uh, nobody is really attacking these. Uh, there's no concerted effort to attack these groups. Uh, because they're on the side of righteousness. You think they overreached in the case of the Georgia election law reform that, that people, that so many of them just immediately piled on and said, well, we're against Georgia and many of the other states expressed solidarity or some, some of the conservative states, Texas expressed solidarity with Georgia. Do you think that maybe that was a sign that it's not the, the behemoth or juggernaut, irresistible juggernaut that it, it, it thought it was, corporate America? Or what corporate America? Or- yeah. Woke corporations. Like you, I think that actually was a bit of a watershed. It might be a bit premature, but Coca-Cola looks so incredibly foolish and Nike looks so incredibly foolish in light of their uh, intercourse with China. Uh, I think I think things are changing a bit. I, there's a piece of anecdotal evidence I would give. Um, I have a chapter in a book that just came out um, really directed by Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center, who we can talk about it at some point. Uh, it was called Red, White, and Black. And it's our attempt to push back against the 1619 Project, which some of your viewers might might know about. We're trying to say there's a constructive way to, to deal with race. It has nothing to do with the extortion that Black Lives Matter is involved in. And the book suddenly shot to number one on Amazon, not simply in African-American studies, which it did, but in uh, number one period. And we figured that that meant you had to sell at least 5,000 copies a day. Uh, so it's no longer number one, but it's very high up there. It's caught us all by surprise. Could you tell us the name of the title again? Red, white, and black. Red, white, and black. there's a subtitle. I don't remember what it is right now, but it's really our effort at the, at the group called 1776, which is what Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center formed. It's mostly black conservative intellectuals and a, and a few whites who, are, who have deep sympathies to what Bob is doing. Uh, so it just came out on Amazon, I think, last week. And in my view, Bob Woodson and the other others in this group are the only ones in America that are not that are serious about solving the, uh, the race issue, not involved in the race grievance industry. There are very constructive ways that we can uh, use our energies to heal the, the legacy of the wound of slavery. Here I depart with some of my conservative friends who want to say, well, America is a colorblind society and full stop, and that's all we need to do. I don't think that's true. I think we aspire for that. I think there is still a wound, and I think there are things that we can do about it. Yeah, I think that that's interesting in your book that you do you do say there is conservatives haven't addressed it and conservatives need to need to have a moral case to I mean address the moral issue because they just kind of well you know that was long but I, I would like to emphasize too that when, when as, as I read your book one of the things that struck me was identity politics presents itself as something new and I just made some notes about things that happen when when the idea that race has never been discussed and it seems to me that. I'm just going to read some of this. The 1960s were roiled by racial unrest. 1970s pop culture was greatly influenced by the miniseries Roots and the film The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. There were multiple court cases in the 1980s involving violence against black men by the police and non-police whites in New York City alone. There was a Central Park rape case. The 1990s saw the Rodney King and O.G. Simpson trials, which all, what all raised legal issues about how black men were treated. It just seems like they're claiming a lot of credit, like they don't know their own history, these young activists. It's like... Do you not realize that this that race has been a primary issue on the American public discussion format uh, front for years, for decades, all my life? I mean, I'm 57, and I've listened to the, the talk for, for years about it. It's not like yeah. it's new. So but- you are but a youngster. I'm 66. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the 60s. And uh, numerous uh, black conservatives, older ones, have gotten really incensed because they and I remember – what the early 60s was like and what the late 60s was like. In the early 60s, uh, aside from there being segregated bathrooms, et cetera, it, there was a certain language about which, which you could use to speak about blacks, black America. It was perfectly acceptable. It would have been absolutely reprehensible to us today, and rightly so. But by the end of the 60s, none of that was, was socially possible. Were there still racists who talked that way? Yes. Are there still racists who talk that way? Of course. But the 1960s, as Shelby Steele has so beautifully said, was a watershed event. A huge transformation was made. And 
and and I think that laid the groundwork for so much of the subsequent efforts to to fix the residual errors that are still there, and there are, and there are still racists in America. Uh, my father's family came from Lebanon in the 1890s. My mother's family has been here maybe a century and a half before that from Northern Europe. Uh, so, but let me just take my father's view on these things. Uh, he came in the 1890s, long after the Civil War, lived in the North, and so was not expressly implicated in the way that many who were involved in Jim Crow South were in the problem of the racial wound. Uh, I firmly reject uh, the idea of, of racial guilt. However, I firmly believe that we have collective responsibility to solve the problems of our country. My view is that even if you can't trace your legacy to the problem of slavery directly, by virtue of being a citizen in this country, we are all, uh, we are all still laboring under this racial wound, and there are concrete things that we can do and should do to help our neighbor. I do not believe, like Bob Woodson, uh, I do not believe that there are there are large, level, large um, uh, political programs, governmental programs that can address these problems. Bob calls himself a radical pragmatist, and he's right. There, the state-sponsored programs have pumped trillions of dollars uh, into this uh, into these communities. It's not clear that m- much great work has been done. The real work has been done, to use Bob's language again. By people who have been touched by grace, by people whose lives have been transformed. He says, most of my friends are exes, ex-hookers, uh, ex-drug dealers, ex-murderers. And he says, the people that I work with are the people whose lives have been a living hell. Uh, they they picked themselves up with the grace of God, uh, built, uh, built small uh, communities of grace and hope, and they're the people that are gone to by the least among us to help solve problems, and they're the people we should support. So I don't believe in state programs much anymore. In the 1960s, it was necessary, I think, for the state step to step in. Uh, but the state is a supplement to all the mediating institutions and the local work that has to be done. And the, the catastrophe of that uh, was that of, this, of the interventions in the 1960s was the state wasn't a supplement. It was a substitute for all the mediating institutions. And I mentioned Tocqueville earlier. Tocqueville I've studied for 40 years. He was very clear in the 1830s how America would be destroyed. It would be destroyed when we destroy or we give up on all of the mediating institutions, by which I mean family, local government, our churches, our local associations. When we give up on all those, we will have what he called the kinder and gentler despotism at the end of history. A tyrant will forgive citizens for not loving him, provided they do not love each other. So the greatest way, the fastest way to destroy democratic liberty is to have us all dependent upon the state. And so when the 1619 Project claims that there's systemic racism in America, the political import of that is you can't fix this problem. Your families can't fix the problem. Your churches can't fix the problem. Your local neighborhoods can't fix the problem. Only the state can fix the problem. Remain isolated and alone, and we will save you. This is a profound pathology, and it does no good for the least among us. Yeah, I think that I was, I'm a little too young to have lived in the, to have been cognizant of the heyday of Martin Luther King, but it does seem that he, he gave agency to whites that you can change, you can become tolerant, you can become a kind, better person. But if you just say, I think you make a, you make the point in the book that if, if the, the you just you throw up your hands and say, well, it's just, it's just systemic, it's systemic. Well, that, that means, well, then I can just, I don't have, as a white person, I don't have to do anything that everybody will just be solved for me. I don't have to actually take any, I don't have to support the NAACP. I don't have to be particularly worried about these issues. And you make the, the chilling point further that, um, that you worry about the alt-right because it's empowering them because they're basically saying, okay. I'm a racist. You're calling me a racist. There's nothing I can do to make you think I'm not a racist. The hell with it. I'm a racist. I'm going to be a racist openly. Can you discuss that a little bit? Because you, you make a really, a really compelling argument that this, this whole thing is, is, is the famous white lash is coming. Yes. Uh, so uh, I tend to look and uh, look at history in very big sweeps and, and uh, to come back to Nietzsche and, to move to the question of the alt-right, let me do it this way. So Nietzsche saw that Christian categories would reside for some time, though with not the Christian architecture, which meant that the guilt would continue to build up uh, and would have to be discharged in some way. Now, the Christian answer to this is, as I said before, 
that through forgiveness, atonement, and repentance, we're able to have a tomorrow. And Nietzsche asks in one of his books in the 1880s, how do we have a tomorrow? And he said, well, the Christians believe you have a tomorrow by forgiveness and atonement. Uh, The weight of the world is lifted from your shoulders so that, behold, I make all things new. To quote from passage from Revelations. But Nietzsche thought there might be another way. And his answer was to forget. And I don't want us to forget. And so he, what he thought, to bring us up to the present day, was that the way to have a tomorrow would be for us to look at slavery and say, yeah, so what? For Europeans to look at colonialism, the two world wars, and the Holocaust, and to say, yeah, so what? We don't care. And what Nietzsche wanted to do is to completely replace this Christian moral framework in which the innocent victim was the central category, because he knew that's where it came from. It came from Christianity. With with a new moral economy based simply on strength and weakness. And I will give credit to identity politics of the left because it does understand that the innocent victim is the sec- is the central category. But this is their central category. And I think the reason why it has purchase in America is because America is still residually Christian enough to remember that within Christianity, the central figure was the innocent victim, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what identity politics does is it completely distorts Christianity. In Christianity, there is only one innocent lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the sins of the world are the things that we have. So none of us are innocent. We are all guilty before God deserving death. And my argument really is that the church's gave up on this very austere understanding of the brokenness of man and divine redemption. And so what happened was that as generation succeeded generation, young people continued to look for a language of purity and stain and a way to think this thing through, but the churches no longer offered what they once offered. And so you get the development of identity politics where there's a scapegoat, it's the white heterosexual male. There's an innocent victim. Uh, that's everybody who's not the white heterosexual male. And we're constantly looking for innocent victims. And, of course, now it's nature too, which is why we, we have to save the planet. I mean, think of the religious overtones of saving the planet. Jesus saves the world. But, no, we are going to save the planet. I mean, we're in the midst of this astounding religious movement. But let me finish up on Nietzsche here in, in the alt-right. So, so a lot of people – Uh, in Europe especially, they can't go back to Christianity. I've been to Europe a number of times and given lectures and said, look, this is what identity politics is declaring, namely you're innocent or you're guilty for nationalism, for two world wars, for the Holocaust. And there's no way out. And the only way out there for you is to return to Christianity so that you can atone, repent, and have a joyful tomorrow to build a new Europe. And they look at me and they say, well, we can't go back to Christianity. And I say, well, then you don't know what you've set yourself up for. Uh, because what's happening now throughout Europe is young men, especially, young white men, especially, who aren't, I don't think, by nature, racists. But if they're told day in and day out that they're a transgressor group, eventually people say enough. And I think the alt-right is being invited by, uh, by identity politics. People who are playing the identity politics game have no idea how extraordinarily dangerous it is to declare that somebody is irredeemably stained without any possibility of resolution and redemption. This is a terrible thing. This is why I do not believe in collective guilt, but I do believe in collective responsibility. And I think we're then we're faced really with two alternatives. Well, three, but the, the, the but the middle one is not really viable. So first, we can go back to Christianity, which is the one I think we really have no choice but to do. Go back to Christianity, by which I mean understand that the categories of purity and transgression and innocence, these are real categories, but they can only be fully understood, and we can only really build a world if if those categories are understood within the full uh, the full architecture that Christianity offers. That's the first option, which is to say to go back and recover the fuller meaning of innocent victim, recover the fuller meaning of transgression, etc. The second option, which I don't think is viable, is the one we're doing now, which is to throw around the language of innocence and transgression and innocent victim, but without the theological accoutrements that make sense of it or allow it to make sense. Uh, 
and then simply have a vicious politics, a return to uh, kind of tribal politics of this group and that group. I, I think that's not going to work for long. Uh, minimally, we have a we have a foreign threat now, a real foreign threat, China, and they are laughing all the way uh, to the future as as we are, are destroying ourselves uh, with identity politics. That's the, the second option. I don't think it's I don't think it's viable in the long term. I think eventually something has to give. And then the third option is the one that we see increasingly emerging in Europe. Uh, in America too, but really in Europe among uh, political class on the right. And that's the old right, uh, whose members are saying, we don't want to talk about the Holocaust or two world wars or colonialism again. We're done. We don't care that we did it and we'll do it again. And there are such young men who are out there. So that I think is the great threat. This is why my book is so animated uh, I'm, I'm firing a warning shot and I'm telling fellow Americans and Europeans that this is a deeply unstable moment that we're living in. And if we're going to use the language of innocence and transgression, and I do want to use it, if we're going to use it, we need to put it back in its full Christian context. And here I hold the churches responsible. They have abandoned uh, the, the original, the full theological language and softened and, and sought not to address the problem of human transgression, sin, which they don't even want to talk about. Yeah, they don't even but, use the word sin, right? No. So it's, it's, this will not happen unless the churches get fixed. And frankly, I don't have much hope in the seminaries because they're completely corrupted. But I do have hope in citizens who begin to awaken and demand of their clergy uh, responsibility. The church has a treasure, and the, the clergy don't understand its own treasure. And it's going to take reawakening to the treasure. There's a, uh, for us to escape from uh, identity politics. I teach Plato's Republic, and if you'll indulge me for one minute, uh, I love it for many reasons. But in the second book, it has 10 books, but in the second book, um, after the boys, uh, there's three or four boys involved who are trying to talk about justice, after it becomes very clear that they don't know what they're talking about, they, uh, they say to Socrates, but Socrates, our fathers, I'll, I'll amplify, our fathers have betrayed us. They've not given us an understanding of justice. And so we have nothing but corrupt versions of justice. And in my more sympathetic moments, I look at those who are defending identity politics, and I see them as the young boys in book two saying, well, nobody's given us a way to understand transgression and innocence. And so we've developed this cheapened form in which we find an imminent scapegoat rather than a transcendent scapegoat with the white heterosexual male. And back to your point about the politics of all this, every single major action item of the Democratic Party, as I say in the book, can really be seen as an attempt to overcome everything the white man constructed in Europe. It's astounding. But I, again, I don't fault them fully because at least they're struggling with the language of innocence and transgression. On the conservative side, you know, think about the, the Reagan movement, you know, is about free markets. Well, that doesn't really speak to innocence and transgression. And then conservatives, and, and I, I will say I'm, that's the group I'm in conversation with. Many of them are happy to talk about tradition, and tradition is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But the, the, lang the moral language of America, beginning with the Puritans, has always been transgression and innocence, the longing for justice. And frankly, the conservative movement has a tin ear to these to these tropes that the left is using, which is why they're being run roughshod over uh, by the left. They, they have nothing to say. It will not work to say we believe in religious liberty. It will not work to say we believe in the founding. I mean, these are beautiful things. But we're at a moment where we have to think through transgression and innocence. And I believe the only way to do it adequately is to return it to its Christian framework. Uh, and, and then we can... Then we can, with a straight face, say, you who are preaching identity politics are feasting on crumbs. Come to the meal. So, for example, uh, microaggressions and unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, what the, what the, is this really? It's really, yeah. it's original sin. It's mm -hmm. the claim that each morning we should wake up and recognize that in our pride, we wrap the world around ourselves. I mean, that's what, that's why one prays in the morning. <laughs> to God, asking for guidance 
uh, asking for a point of orientation so it's not just about us. I mean, anyone who hears the claim about any Christian who hears the screaming claims about unconscious bias and uh, and, and uh, whatever the other one was for a minute, uh, they, they'll see that it's not enough to say that it's racial. That's just one part of it. To be human is to have unconscious bias uh, toward everyone. That's what pride is. St. Augustine said this in the City of God in the 400s. So any Christian who hears this stuff kind of chuckles. But Christians don't know what their treasure is anymore. They don't they can't speak about original sin. They're just embarrassed by it. Uh, and as a consequence, the identity politics left picks up this language in a deeply deformed way, and, and there are no answers to it without Christianity. Yes, I was just going to say, apropos of the, the microaggressions, it, it makes human contact at the simplest, basic, quotidian level impossible. Because if I, if I say something like, that was a really important point you made in that meeting. Oh, well, did you not... Did you not expect me to be able to articulate? You know, it's, it's I know. just, you it's just, it's, it's, you can't win. And 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 for example, I work, I work at a university. I won't say which because, to be honest, even doing this interview, everything is so paralyzing. I was almost afraid to do the interview with you because because of the book. I thought, well, you know, even during the interview, I might say something that could just destroy me. <laughs> you know, which is a very narcissistic view of my own importance. But at the same time, it's 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 a it's an actual. It's an actual concern, and, but I was just going to say that they sent out the other day in the email this, this essay by a young uh, uh, black obstetrician, and she gave this anecdote of an elderly light, white woman looking at her son and her little, her little, the black doctor's little son and, and saying what a sweet little boy he was. And then the woman said, but in, in the later in the essay, she says, but this woman, it's, it, when my little boy grows up, that she will clutch her pearls and hide her purse. And, and, and I just thought, this woman is just being nice to another young mother. And it just, it just seems so poisonous. And my reaction was, well, if you feel that way, I would worry about my white mother being treated by a doctor who's so resentful of white people. It just, it just, it's just circular. You know, it just, I just, I was, I was really amazed that, that she didn't have the self-reflection to realize that if you're saying that an elderly white woman is a threat, to your son 10 years from now, that's a very strange view of, of humanity and a very depressing view, a very bleak view of humanity, which is really, and, and as you say, there's no, there's no redemption. I mean, the woman can't do anything. I mean, she, she showed kindness and that's, that's just a sign of future evil. And it just, I don't, it's just frustrating. Yeah. Well, so I mentioned that the two authors that I'm probably most uh, engaged in, in the first half of the book are, are Tocqueville and uh and nietzsche and apropos this point that you're making um identity politics proposes that we know who we are we are our identity i'm a white male and, and everybody has their own little category and that's it and one of the reasons i love uh democracy in america tocqueville's book democracy in america was that he saw already in the 1830s that the, the great problem in the future was going to be that we would cut the links that connect us to others and become completely lonely and isolated. And his view was the only way that we can redeem this experiment called democracy was that if we build a world together, and my favorite passage in the book is this one, feelings and ideas are renewed, the heart enlarged, the mind expanded only by the reciprocal actions of one upon another. And what he's suggesting here is that, uh, when we meet each other in face-to-face relations, what happens always exceeds our understanding. And it exceeds it in two ways. It exceeds it in that our understanding of ourself is altered and our understanding of other people is altered. And Tocqueville believed that we would have to enter into all social relations with a provisional understanding of who we are and who the other person is. And that through working together, we would discover a bit more about ourselves and about other people. The problem with identity politics is it does not want to go through that difficult exercise. And it is a very difficult exercise. It wants to rest in a self-satisfied way with the declaration, which is um, a, a statement really of resistance that I am this and you are that. And therefore everything you say will be filtered through this lens and everything I say um, is going to be innocent and pure and involved in speaking truth to power. You can't build a world this way. But I don't wish to suggest that, that 
human relations are are easy. Uh, my father's family can tell all sorts of stories about the difficulties of being an immigrant in the Northeast in the 1920s, 1930s, and 40s. Uh, but, you know, human life is always tough. And the reason why I love uh, our liberal polity is that it, it doesn't pretend for a moment that we aren't different, but it says that we can build a world together, notwithstanding our differences. I don't wish to build a homogenous culture. I wish to build one in which people are not forced into segregation, uh, but they're not forced into a, a kind of monoculture uh, and integration as well. I'm happy about the pluralism of the world, and we're going to have prejudices. We're going to have preconceptions, This is, and this will never change. <laughs> we have to understand this. I spent the better part of the last 15 years building universities in the Middle East. Let me tell you about prejudices. This is universally human. I think one of the problems of the left is there's a naivete. The presumption is that man is naturally good and naturally loving, and that anything that's the exception um, is somehow a, a cause of, say, you know, race or some sort of inequality that a, a dis, uh, a, a disuse of power, misuse of power. And my view is, no, it's really the opposite, that the natural disposition is to form into groups. We should start with that and then work to find ways that we don't fall into the trap. And that's what liberalism does. It says, yes, you might be this, that, or the other thing, but you're, you're a citizen too. And we have to be able to come out of our ethnic or racial conclaves and, and work with others. And what Tocqueville understood in the 1830s was if you have a decentralized form of government where people aren't looking to the state to solve their problems, but instead they have to look to their neighbor They'll be forced out of their little enclave, and they'll realize that they're not what they thought they were, and the other person isn't what they thought they were. So I'm not troubled in the least by America being an immigrant society. I'm troubled when, when we, we conclude from that that we're only these racial and ethnic tribes. I want pluralism. Pluralism is a beautiful thing. Uh, but, but what identity politics does is it parcels, parcels us off into distinct groups and says you must be only this. And that's not true. So identity politics is, is really – it reflects a, a cowardice, uh, a, a failure to understand that we don't know who we are and that we only discover who we are by building a world with others in our families and our local associations. Yeah, so I it's think, ultimately uh, rooted in fear. Despite its anger, it's rooted in fear. Yes, I was just going to say that in one of the interviews I've seen with you on on the on the web, and I really encourage listeners to to, to Google your name and and the name of the book, so as to see some of those interviews, and they're they're very useful. And I, in one of them, you said you you advise people just don't use the word identity. Just say I am an American. I am a man. I am a Christian, rather than say I identify as a man or I identify as you know just yeah. it's, it's strange at this yeah, so, point oh, I'm sorry I'm just going to remind listeners that we are talking today with Joshua Mitchell about his book America Awakening Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time I'm sorry you go ahead Josh well I'm old enough to have seen a number of intellectual fashions come and go I went through college uh, in the mid 70s let's say and the burning debates were about Marx and Freud well those aren't burning debates on college campuses today. In the 1980s, what I began to see, late 1980s, was people were beginning to use this word identity. Identity, the postmodernism emerges out of Europe, comes to America, and the fixation in academic circles after the collapse of Marxism, especially after 1989, uh, was this fixation on the term identity. And suddenly everybody began talking about using a word that nobody had used 10 or 15 years ago. So I grew up and I, I would say, well, I'm an American. And now everybody feels like they have to say, well, I have an American identity. Uh, I'm especially concerned about this in conservative movements because th these are ostensibly movements which seek to, to push back against identity politics. But conservatives, strangely enough, have decided that they too will use the word identity. And so they're arguing about what the American identity is, which is yeah, really, that's interesting. really dangerous. So my view is, why don't we stop using the word and see how well we do? I perform this experiment, by the way, every single semester when I'm teaching authors from the ancient past. I say, here are the words you're not allowed to use, for example, when we're, when we're talking about Plato. You're not allowed to use identity, 
values, meaning all of these words that have emerged and dominate our thinking for the last for the last hundred years. Uh, and it's it's very informative because people realize that they throw these words out there and they think they're doing work for them. Uh, and when they can't use them, they have to come up with other words to understand human experience. And in a way, this is a continuation of what I just said a couple of minutes ago. We have these terms that we throw about and then we think our work is done. But the world and our experience is far more mysterious than the language that we use allows us to convey. And so rather than relying on these cheap proxies for, for deep understanding, I think it's time we put down the word identity altogether uh, and, and come up with some new way of encountering one another. Because this is really the great problem, which I deal with throughout the book, is that we're, we're using these very cheap proxies for true engagement. Uh, and, and so on the one hand, and this really points to the third part of the book, on the one hand, we have these immense powers at our disposal. And yet uh, there's this sense I see everywhere of impotence, of numbness, of despair, that somehow notwithstanding the fact that on our iPhone, which I don't have, but on our on our cell phones, we have command of the whole world. People are numb beyond measure, and they can't figure out what to do about it. So I think part of what we need to do is to step away from the abstractions, step away from our phones, and 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 walk out our doors and encounter neighbors, encounter our neighbors, uh, and see what happens. And to come back to that quote that I love from Tocqueville so much. Uh, my sense is that we will immediately discover that all of our categories will be exceeded. Feelings and ideas are renewed. The heart enlarged. The mind expanded only by the reciprocal actions of one upon another. That's what we need to do, and, and we're frightened to do it. And I think we need to realize that, that the alternative to that is this numb condition, which is killing us all. You make you use the term two terms in the book shortcuts and substitutism. Yes, <laughs> Could, is that That's, is that a coinage of your own? I had to yes, I had to work on pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> it's it's a tortured use of language, but you know, occasionally philosophers uh, decide that that's the only way to do it. So uh, in the third, so there's three parts of the book, and we're we're now onto the third. Maybe we can talk about the second in a bit. But the third part of the book is actually in a way the most the most damning, because I do think identity politics will pass. It might be another 10 years. My hope is that the way in which it passes is that we return these categories of innocence and transgression to their Christian framework. So, so that's my, that's my uh, position on that one. But in a way, I'm more concerned with this uh, piece that I talk about in the third part of the book. So uh, the first two, as I said, are oriented by ideas that come from Nietzsche and Tocqueville. But the third part comes from more ancient sources. It's really in the Republic, and then there's a modern author who talks about this too. The, the danger of turning supplements into substitutes. I mean, it seems you know like a very silly distinction, but it turns out to be massively important. And I think Facebook is a good way of understanding the problem. But, but even to introduce Facebook, let me do it in a slightly – more immediate way. Um, for a decade or so, I, I lifted weight in my lifted weights in my forties and fifties. Um, and the temptation of every weightlifter is to turn to these protein and supplement powders. Uh, and instead of making a meal and then having the supplemental powders with the meal, you'd say, well, my goodness, I'm gaining all this muscle with these protein supplements. I think I'll just skip the meal and live on these, these supplements. In other words, I'll turn these supplements into a substitute. Or we can do this in terms of meals and vitamins, right? So the vitamins are a supplement to your foods. And so have a good meal. And then if you need vitamins, that's wonderful. And they will make you stronger or they will help you return to health. And that's a, that's a great thing. But there's something inscribed in the human soul that that makes us make that second move, which is, hmm, maybe if they're making me stronger, maybe I can bypass all the difficult work of making the meal and just live on the supplements, live on the vitamins. I think drug addiction is of this sort. So I think a duck addiction is, I think a more capacious way of understanding addiction is that we turn a supplement into a substitute. So a drug as a supplement to your everyday life is fine. 
but we feel high from the drug and we think, well, I'm going to take a shortcut and I'm just going to turn that into a substitute. And that's what addiction is. And so this, this problem of confusing supplements and substitutes or of turning a supplement into a substitute, I see everywhere. And they're in, they're in seemingly unrelated phenomena. So certainly the opioid crisis is the first and obvious confirmation of this. But, you know, in the book, I talk about fast food. And there's nothing wrong with going out into a restaurant or picking up fast food if you're in a hurry. But that's as a supplement to a meal around the table. Well, look at the architecture of our homes these days. They don't even have dining room tables. And, you know, go go look at Chick-fil-A lines, <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts lines, the drive through lines. I mean, it's just astounding, especially since the COVID crisis. We've turned the the fast food from a supplement into a substitute. And no wonder we're so unhealthy. I talk about drinking water bottles too. I mean, we're consuming hundreds of billions of water bottles every year and they're ending up in landfills. I mean, maybe we're recycling them here in North America, but I can assure you from having lived two years in Iraq that they're ending up smoldering in landfills. Uh, so, you know, we used to take a thermos and leave the house, but we had a home and we'd come home and drink water from the tap. But now we're all living out of drinking water bottles. And we don't even drink water from our own municipal service because we think it's impure. We have water purifiers. I mean, the level of distrust in, in the community and in the home is so immense. So we don't even have a home. I mean, the fast food and the drinking water bottles suggest to me that we've lost the centrality of the home. It's fine to have a supplement to the home, but we've lost the home. And this we, shows up we, at the we, end. We've lost meals, too. They don't even, the young millennials don't even have breakfast. They just, they don't recognize that. And they don't know how to cook. And they don't know how to cook. This <laughs> is a serious problem, just as they don't know how to write cursive. I mean, what we're doing is we're diminishing, to come to a word that's throughout the book, we're diminishing human competence. Competence takes a huge amount of time and labor and commitment to develop. And so... Uh, to come back to the meals and vitamins, I mean, it's, it takes a lot to learn how to be a good cook and to set the table and have a nice meal without constant interruptions. And now I come to Facebook. So Facebook, I mean, think of the term Facebook friends. It's a remarkable term, just as is online shopping. So shopping and friendship, these are, these are connoisseurship. These, there's no recipe for these things. You know, you can send somebody who doesn't know how to, uh, doesn't know really how to shop. You can send them to a store and they're going to bring back the wrong things. And friendship is something that really takes a lot of time and effort to work, to work through. And there's no, there's no recipe for it. There's not a how to manual, though people try. And what I try to say in the book is that these competencies are, are the stuff of human life and they can be supplemented. So if you know how to shop, online shopping can be great as a supplement. If you know what friendship is, uh, then uh, that's great. If you've got Facebook friends around the globe, it extends it. But it's one thing to use it as a supplement to the real hard work of friendship and quite another to make it a substitute for friendship. And I think that's what's happened is that uh, with respect to shopping and with respect to friendship, we found the cheap shortcut, the substitute. Uh, we've turned a supplement into a substitute. And and so young people today will say, I've got a thousand Facebook friends. Well, my dad told me when I was 12 years old, he said, uh, you know, I came back from first day of seventh grade and I said, I've made all these friends. He looked at me and said, a friend is somebody you're going to share, you're going to share your toothbrush with. And I was immediately put in place. Uh, and I understood what he was saying, which is friendship is a rare thing and count your blessings if you have three or four friends. But instead, what these young people, not only young people, all of us increasingly have this huge array of quote, contacts and, and social media friends. But how many friends do we have that we share a meal with and see regularly? And so insofar as we lose that, the base, the meal, so to speak, and live on the vitamins, uh, we, on the one hand, feel this high from living on the protein powder, the vitamins, the, the global the contact network we have, and we go to sleep feeling numb because we have not uh, developed, we've not nurtured the human competence that alone can give human life meaning. And so water bottles, fast food, Facebook friends, online shopping, driverless cars, uh, and, and then it even goes to the realm of politics. So the state can be a supplement to the mediating institutions through which we develop these competencies. 
And I think this is what Martin Luther King had in mind in the civil rights movement. He never had it in mind that we would develop national programs that dismantled the family and, and gave uh, spiritual nourishment, took away from the spiritual nour- nourishment of the churches and said the state will take care of all these things through, for you through counseling services. He never believed that for a second. He saw the state as a supplement to the mediating institutions. But the movement on the left today is, uh, in- involves a deep distrust of the family, say, because it's you know, heteronormative or the churches because they're homophobic. The, the left really wants to destroy these mediating institutions. And this predates, I should be very clear, this predates identity politics. I think conservatives have this right by identifying the progressive movement as, as in a way the preamble to all this because the progressive movement really believed that local competence wasn't going to save democracy. You need to have experts. You need to have the state take care of pro- problems. Uh, you need to have a massive bureaucracy, which is what we now have. And that's the wager we're still involved in. I, I think. was just going to ask, do you think that the pandemic has strengthened the expert class or weakened it? Because in a way, they've amassed a huge amount of power, and yet the level of trust is is pretty damn, is, is lessening, it seems to me, that people are saying, I'm sorry, you can, I, can, I can go to a liquor store, but I can't go to church. And, that, and this, that they keep saying, believe the science, believe the science. And yet, it's, and yet, and yet, for example, the CDC says take the masks off, but the state governors are saying no, keep them on, and so it's, they don't even agree with each other. There's not a consensus yeah. now. On- I think it's I think it's going two ways at the same time. I think there's one group that's that's comforted even more than they were before by the state, and I think there's another group. Um, and just, you know, I don't have to tell you this. You can probably see it. Uh, there's another group of, I'm not going to say only Trump voters, but a lot of Trump voters. Uh, it, let's just say the populist conservatives more broadly, whose suspicion of the state has only grown. And this is a very, very big problem. I think uh, the left concluded that with the defeat of Trump, uh, the, the one-off that he seems to represent is now out of the way and they can get back to business. But my view of this is that whether Trump is here or not, there's a, there's a great problem in America, which is a growing distrust of elites. And it's on the left in some ways too, but it really is more among the populist movement on the right. Uh, and, and, and you can see my disposition here. I'm, I'm a little nervous about the complete repudiation of the state, which I think you will find in some very strong populist movements. On the other hand, I am with that group in that they see that the state has not become a supplement to the mediating institutions, but a substitute for them. And I think this is the great battle that's being fought. And it's not only being fought in America, it's being fought in Europe. Because so many young people have seen that what Brussels has promised uh, has been has turned out to be a nightmare. And by the way, the COVID, uh, the, the vaccination rollout has proven in Europe that highly centralized bureaucracy is going to make a mess of things in America. Well, Britain, Britain, have, Britain showed that it said, well, we have, we have our vaccines and we're going to administer them and the rest of you are on your own, which is yeah, kind of validates yeah, the whole Brexit. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, this is, so again, Tocqueville mm-hmm. saw this in 1848, you know, the great upheavals in 1848 for him were confirmation that the elites had utterly lost touch with the common, the common man, the common citizen. Well, that's and I have, Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, apropos of elites, that there seems to be this campaign to prevent conservatives from be, from joining the elite, that they're they're screening out people who seem to be conservative from graduate school. So you can't even become a member of the elite in any legitimate way if you can't get the credentials that would, would just that would have some diversity within the elite. Yeah. Well, I see this at the university where I teach and mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, admissions committees are looking for a certain kind of student. And for the most part, they're not looking for a 50-50 balance. Uh, and this is, I think, terrible. Uh, I don't know how we're going to resolve these problems, but I do know that unless we've got, uh, as it were, intellectual diversity in the classroom and among the professorate, we're, cert- we're not going to have a fighting chance of doing this. Uh, the, the elite universities, really all of them now, which are following the elite universities, have become an echo chamber. Uh, when I began my career at Georgetown in 1993, it was almost 50-50 balance. But now, um, now there are very few conservatives left. I'm actually a registered independent, but I have many sympathies for what the conservative movement is trying to do. Um, 
And uh, nobody wants to hear anything I have to say at Georgetown. I've been completely left behind. Every uh, every memo, we every email we get from the president, the provost, and the, and the deans, it's really about social justice. And I think this is a, a terrible move. Oh, look, I'm committed to justice as well. Justice is the great question of human life. So and here I think conservatives make a mistake by not admitting that. Uh, but but that there can only be – that social justice is one thing. Well, this is very troubling, especially in a university. When I was in Iraq uh, for two years running the American University there, which is a startup which is now successful, um, I told my kids to leave their AK-47s in the trunk and I, I wasn't joking. They brought their rifles to school. And I said, listen, the university is the only known institution in the entire universe where we have to check our guns at the door and have really difficult conversations about things we're going to disagree about. That's what the university is supposed to be. It's the only institution in the universe where it's, that is its mission. And we have failed in that mission now. Well, I admire very much what you've done in the Middle East because it was not it was very selfless and brave to do, to do that for people that are desperate for higher education. So that's a very admirable thing. Um, and with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Joshua Mitchell, author of American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.